And from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 7 through 12. Land that drinks and the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God and Father, as we sit under your word, as the people formed by it, I pray that you would be speaking to our hearts, stirring us up to love and affection for you and for each other. Be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word. Be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, for this church season of Lent leading up to Easter, um, where we celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection, we have been trying to be mindful as a people of our sin and our call to repentance, to recognize the things that give us that need for Jesus' death and resurrection. And as we've been doing that, what we've been doing is working through what are called the seven deadly sins. Righteousness in the Bible is not a destination you reach, but it's pictured as a direction And the seven deadly sins describe these different ways that you can start to veer off the path. They're not the the most terrible destinations you can end up at, but they are the first steps that start to turn aside from that direction of righteousness. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the sin of sloth. But before we dive into it, I think sloth is maybe unique among the deadly sins and that we might wonder, is this really that bad? (laughs) In the first place, it doesn't seem like a very destructive sin, right? I mean, when we think about like wrath or envy, we we can see that breeding murder. And when we picture greed, we can picture, you know, many of the social ills of our world. When we think about pride, we think it makes men into monsters. When we think about sloth, it seems to make them couch potatoes. (laughs) Um, What's so bad about that, we might wonder. And more than that, We can struggle to think about sloth, I think, because we wonder, do we really struggle with that sin in our time and place? I mean, here in America, in the 21st century, we are busy. (laughs) In the first place, we spend a lot of time working. I don't know that you've ever, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but here's a chart of the five largest developed economies in the world and how many hours a year that people spend working. And we are at the top of that chart. In some cases, there's a big gap. I mean, Germany, which has the fourth largest economy in the world, not just developed, um, 
on average, the Germans spend eight hours less every week working than Americans do. Um, we even spend more time on average than Japan, which has a reputation for being overworked. So we work a lot. And not only that, but we're busy in all kinds of other ways, too, in our activities and events, in our children's activities and events. When you're not at work, you're constantly running back and forth, moving them from practice to meeting to game or our grandchildren's. And so surely we might think, even if sloth is a sin, it's not a sin that we're guilty of, Right? that I'm not so sure in either of those cases. I think that perhaps it is more deadly and closer to us than we realize. But to understand why, we need to start by understanding what we mean when we talk about sloth. Because it's a much bigger category than I think our brains get. So what is sloth, right? What does this deadly sin mean? Well, in the first place, let me just own up front that the English word sloth when we use it, I think all of us are picturing this in our minds, when we, right? Like, that is one of the problems that maybe we have, this animal that moves very slowly. And so we think that it sort of equates to a person that is like this. In other words, we tend to equate sloth only with laziness. Uh, we use those words interchangeably in the English language, and even in English translations of the Bible, we use those words interchangeably. And the Bible does warn against laziness. That is a part of what sloth includes. So, for example, in Ecclesiastes 10, through laziness the rafters sag, because of idle hands the house leaks. Or the book of Proverbs memorably warns, and I think my wife quotes to me often, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. She quotes the first part of that to me, just to be clear. Um, and we're taught to work hard as Christians. That's a part of our calling. Christians are supposed to work. Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonica, is talking about how they take up offerings to help the poor. But he then says this. He says, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who's unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. Um, they are not busy. They're busy bodies. And such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. Now, those verses sometimes get over-applied. Paul's not talking about, like, hard cases in society, right? Like people with disabilities or, you know, I mean, or other, like, circumstances like that. But as a general principle, he's saying, like, Christians are called to work and work hard. So laziness is sinful, but that isn't the same thing as what we're talking about when we talk about sloth. It's just a narrow slice of how sloth can present itself. And part of that is because while laziness is a sin in Scripture, rest is not, right? Sloth often becomes in our minds the same thing as inactivity, the same thing as not doing stuff, but rest is actually something that is good and commanded by God in the Bible. In the Ten Commandments, right? Right there next to warnings about idolatry and murder, it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. So part of God's design for us as creatures is that we need rest, right? Part of his constitution for his people Israel is that they're to have this day of rest. And failing to rest is not the same thing as avoiding sloth, which is part of why we need to be careful not to just equate it with laziness. Because while the Bible calls us to work hard, it also warns against a kind of anxious work that we do not take rest from. 
So for example, the psalmist warns, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for God gives to his beloved sleep. So if you go home this afternoon and take a nap, right? Or if you, if you rest like that, that is not the sin of sloth. So what is it then? If we keep saying what it's not, what is this thing? Well, when we talk about sloth, that is our translation of this Greek word, acedia. I don't use Greek words a lot, but this is useful. That word, acedia, that literally just means without care. Without care. Not in the sense of carefree, just to be clear, but in the sense of uncaring or careless. We've been discussing the seven deadly sins as disordered desire. That's the framework we keep coming back to. All of sin is about our desires getting disordered in some way. But the other deadly sins are really about our desires being disordered in terms of their object. So wealth is disordered desire in terms, or sorry, greed is disordered desire in terms of wealth, right? Lust is disordered desire in terms of intimacy. But sloth is a disorder that's desired not because of its object, but because of the nature of the desire itself. It is lacking desire, not wanting or not wanting strongly enough what we should. One of the differences between Christianity and many other religions is that Christianity sees desire as a good thing. That isn't true of every religion. So like if you're in an Eastern religion, desire is kind of viewed as a problem. The problem is that you want stuff and, you know, enlightenment means sort of stopping wanting stuff. Christianity, though, always insists that desire is something that is natural for us as humans and something that we should appropriately have. We're called to desire God in an ultimate sense, to deeply and desperately desire him. The language of the psalmist, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. And we're to appropriately desire God's gifts as we delight in God himself He does, in a sense, promise to meet our other desires. So the psalmist also says, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now that verse can be misled, because that is not saying that God will give you Lamborghinis and McMansions, right? But what the psalmist is saying is that these other desires we have for intimacy, for security, for meaning, that as we come to God, he is addressing those desires. Those are good desires things. We just need to have them in their right order and keep God himself at the center. So desire is a good thing. Um, And the other deadly sins, right, they're about then losing the order of that desire, wanting some good thing too much or inappropriately. But sloth is about losing the desire. It, and that can manifest in a lot of different ways. That can manifest in laziness. That's why laziness is a part of sloth, sitting at home, spending your life watching Netflix and eating, you know, freezer meals and that's all that you do with your life, like that reflects a lack of desire for for deep and meaningful things that you should have. Um, It's being pleased with the shallowest of pleasures, but that can also manifest in busyness. We can fill up our schedules without actually having much desire either. I can work half-heartedly for 100 hours a week. There's a reason, right, that the office drone is this image that we have of somebody working, mindlessly laboring. Their body's active, but their desire's dead. Part of that is because busyness for us is really often just a way to avoid boredom. 
we are uncomfortable being still and being with ourselves and being alone with our thoughts. But, so we fill up our schedules and we pack every minute. But it's not because we have some deep, you know, things that we're leaning into, but simply because we're afraid to be still. And that becomes clearer when we recognize um, another reality about sloth, which is when we say it's a failure to desire, what we really mean is that it is a failure to deeply desire what is truly good. Sloth manifests in desiring what is truly good. So we often, what we're doing when we pack those schedules and make ourselves just busy, busy, is really that we're trying to stay entertained rather than to grow deep as people. Eugene Peterson, the author and pastor, comments that sloth is most often evidenced in busyness, frantic running around trying to be everything to everyone and then having no time to listen or pray, no time to become the person who is doing these things. And all of that should point us to a question that is helpful in diagnosing our sloth. Sloth isn't just about do do I desire anything, but rather how deeply do I desire things? Are we deeply desiring what is truly good or being satisfied with what is distracting and shallow and easy? We are constantly presented with choices of desires between what is good and what is easy, right? Do I want to exercise and pursue health or eat this whole pack of Oreos? Do I want to zone out to my television or have a conversation with my wife? Do I want to spend time with my kids or keep doodling around on my phone? And in each of those choices, there's a sense in which I desire both things, right? But one of those is a shallow desire for what's easy, and one of those is a deep desire for what is truly good. And things aren't always even that obvious. Sometimes I think that question of what's easy and what's good gets to the messy places in our heart. Like I, I have known people who, who don't work, right? They detach from their jobs and do as little as possible, and they do that because it's easier than really engaging and taking the risk and, you know, and putting in the labor. And I've known people who work constantly and never come home and spend, an, you know, 100 hours a week at the office because that's easier than actually trying to work on their marriage and pour into their families, that both, you know, in the, the, like in that case, both not working and working too much can be a manifestation of our lacking appropriate desire. So that's the question. Are we desiring what is best in a deep way or what is easy? And that idea of sloth as failing to deeply desire what is truly good also helps us understand why the sin is so destructive. But to get there, we need to clarify something about how the world is supposed to work. So think back to the Garden of Eden, right? If you've been around the church, Eden, you know, this paradise where God first puts Adam and Eve, what do you picture Adam and Eve doing in the garden before sin and the fall and everything goes wrong? I think our picture is often that they're basically just getting fat and doing nothing, right? They're laying on these beds of palm fronds and feeding each other grapes, I don't know, being naked and unashamed as Genesis 2 says it together, right? That that's how we picture life in Eden before the fall. But that is not how the Bible pictures it. So God creates Adam, and then in Genesis 2, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. 
Adam, right, he's not created to just laze around in this garden. He's created with a job to do, right? I mean, Adam's a farmer before the fall, before sin. That is his job in the world. And that means something really important, which is that God makes the world and he makes it very good, but then he puts Adam and Eve in that world and their job is still to make it better. That their purpose isn't simply to not damage the world. Their purpose is actually to pour into it and build it up. And that means that um, our work is good. That's part of what that means, that we're not designed to just be on perpetual vacation, right? But we are designed to work and contribute to the world. But that means even more than that, that sin isn't just about doing bad stuff. Um, Sometimes I think that we fall into this idea that sin is only about actively hurting the world through our actions. But sin also rests in failing to do good in the world. Some of you have heard Edmund Burke, the Irish statesman. He famously said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And that quote gets trotted out a lot for like political causes, right? So, you know, it's like, you know, don't do nothing, go out and vote. But there's also something spiritually true about that idea. In our um, confession of sin sometimes, um, I have us use the classic language from the Book of Common Prayer, which was written just after the Reformation. And we used it this morning because it's hard to top the completeness, but it confesses our sins in thought, word, and deed, in what we have done, and in what we have left undone. Sin doesn't just include acts we should avoid. It also includes failure to do good in the world. And that is sloth. Even if you've never been around the church, you've probably heard the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? You know, you know that story. And so this guy gets beat up by bandits and left by the side of the road to die. Um, and along comes this priest, and he sees this guy and goes to the other side and passes by. And along comes this Levite and does the same thing. And then along comes a Samaritan and helps the guy. And we could preach a whole sermon on that. I'm not going to go into all the interesting details of that. But at the most basic level, what that, what that parable is about, right, is that the sin of the priest and the Levite is in doing nothing. It's just in continuing walking. When we see problems in the world, our temptation is to say, well, it's not my fault, and therefore I shouldn't worry about it. When we see people struggling financially, it's not my fault. When we see people hurting emotionally, it's not my fault. When we see racism and cruelty and all of these things at big levels and little levels around us, we just say, you know, that's not on my head. And that might be true, but the guy being beat up by the bandits wasn't the priest's fault either. And yet he is still in sin because sin isn't just about doing evil in the world. It is also about not caring enough to seek the good. If you look at our scripture reading for this morning, the author of Hebrews is contrasting two sorts of lives, but they aren't the person who does bad stuff and the person who avoids doing bad stuff. Instead, it is the person who is fruitful and the person who is fallow, who is barren. He pictures us as fields. So in verse 7, land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. So that's the question he's asking, what kind of field are you? Are you a fruitful field or a fallow field? Our calling is not just to avoid evil, our calling is to be fruitful. 
which is then what I want us to think about for the rest of this morning. If the sin of sloth is in failing to pursue that fruitfulness, the sin of sloth is in being uncaring, what does it look like to live lives that do care and that desire those good things and seek to show that fruit? And there are really three ways that I think the Bible seeks to stir up our desire for that fruitfulness. Three things it calls us to reflect on as we think about the idea of being fruitful. And the first is that we are called to a deep desire for God's work. We're called to pursue God's work in the world. Paul, in the letter to the Thessalonians that we read from earlier, he goes on in the passage we read to say this. He says, And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Their desire is to seek to do good in the world, and that is a calling there to be diligent in, to never tire of it. In our scripture reading this morning, the author seeks to encourage his readers in verse 10. He says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. And then he goes on in the next few verses to call them to turn from sloth. And we'll come back to that first part about God not forgetting in a minute. But uh, what the author is praising is that these people are seeking to be about God's work. But what is that work, right? We hear that, and I think we can get confused. If Right there in Hebrews 10, right, what it says is that it is helping God's people and continuing to help them. That is to say that the work that Paul is commending these people for and that they're being called into is the work of love, of serving and loving the people in, in the world around them. And when we talk about doing good works in Scripture— That's really what we're talking about. That's the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Like the the question Jesus is addressing in that parable is the Pharisees come and ask, what does it mean to love my neighbor? And then he tells them this story. It means seeking to do good for them, whoever they are. One of the things that causes us to struggle with sloth, I think, is that we feel like our lives are insignificant. We feel like they don't matter. And if we talk about sin and Christianity just in that negative way, if it's only about the things that we avoid, I think that actually feeds into our feelings of insignificance. We can be left feeling like our job on earth is to just not do any harm, to not make waves, that our goal is to arrive in glory and have the Lord greet us and say, well done, you didn't mess things up too badly. And that isn't the kind of life that gets me excited, right? But Scripture's calling in the world is not just to avoid messing things up. It is actually positive. It is to be a force of good and blessing in the world. That is meant to work its way out in every part of our lives. The way we work at our jobs, what we're being called to do is to be a force for good, not just punch the time clock and make our check, but figure out how to build up and bless and serve the people and the place that we're working and serving. That's supposed to work our ways out in things like family life, the way that we relate to our, our parents and our spouses and our children, right? My goal with my kids is not just don't mess them up. <laughs> my goal with my kids is actually to bless and grow them and help them to, you know, to become more than they are. That's meant to inform how we live in our communities, right? We shouldn't just not be bad neighbors. We should be neighbors <laughs> that people are grateful for. Um, and let me just suggest, you say all that, and that's sweeping, so let me suggest a practical way to try to think about that this week. Um, and it, um, like we said, that should exist in every area of life, but let me give you one practice that might be helpful to try, and I'm going to be doing this this week, but this week, each day, try to think about one 
unexpected way to bless someone. Just try to think about one unexpected way to bless someone. By unexpected, I mean, yeah, like I tell my wife that I love her every day, right? And so that, that's not going to count that I just say I love you to my wife. Um, but like, um, but think about one way that you can step out of what you would ordinarily do and do something to actively bless or build up someone. It could be really small. Send an encouraging note to somebody. Take the time to praise somebody's work, even though they should do it anyway, and you wouldn't normally do it, right? Cook dinner when it's not your turn. Help mend somebody's fence. It can even be anonymous, and in fact, I think that's a good, a good default setting if you can, right? To, to not have it be something that people notice, but just... Um, like I think about, when I think about this, I, what I always think about is years ago when I was in seminary, I worked at Starbucks as a barista, um, and it was a Starbucks with a drive-thru, which was a rare thing back then, but every few weeks there was this guy, um, and he was some big shot lawyer or something, I don't know, but he would, he would come up to the window, and he would, um, you know, he'd, he'd get his drink that he always got, and he'd just hand them a hundred dollar bill, and he would say, just buy drinks until it runs out, and then he would go on, Right? And I will tell you what, like, I mean, what he was doing, you know, I mean, like, he's saving people like four bucks, but for the next, like, 20 cars, as people, you know, as they pull up and you're like, oh, no, you don't have to pay, you know, somebody just paid, and they're like, who is it? And you're like, you know, I mean, they don't know who it is, but he brought this sort of, like, joy and brightness in that moment into the world, right? And that is the sort of thing that we are called to be about. So maybe this week, just look for those chances to be an unexpected blessing. But understand why, too, right? I, I suggest that. And it's not because you're, like, winning points with Jesus or something, right? You know, in the gospel, you're free and righteous already. The reason I'm encouraging it is because as we do that, it starts to make us be more attentive to all of the opportunities we have in our days to be those sorts of blessings in the world. So that's part of fruitfulness, being about God's work. But we're also called to some deeper things, I think, that speak to our hearts, um, when the author of Hebrews issues this call to fruitfulness, he then says this. He says, We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end, so that what you hope for may be realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So we're to be diligent to the very end. And he kind of gives two different reasons for that, or two levels that that calling meets us. The first is he talks about God's rewards. He says that um, we're to recognize God's rewards, this inheritance that we've been promised. Um, we don't dwell on it often, but the Bible does offer this idea that our good works on earth will be rewarded in eternity. Jesus calls us to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Paul calls people to do good works and says that they should do them knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So what do we make of that? Well, first of all, we need to be clear that when we talk about that idea of God's rewards, we are not talking about God's welcome and fellowship and the baseline just like joy of eternity, right? That is purchased for us only by God's grace, and he views us as righteous in Jesus Christ and loves us like that. And then some people also struggle with that idea of rewards because they feel like it makes our good works become mercenary, 
like I'm, you know, giving up a couple rooms in my mansion here on earth to like buy some bigger rooms in my mansion up in heaven. Um, and it is not the case that you're going to get to heaven and God's going to be like, well, you know, let's open up the ledger here. I don't, I don't see a lot of, you know, a lot of like glory bucks here. So, you know, you're just going to be living on ramen for eternity, right? <laughs> We're not talking about that sort of thing. But it is biblical to recognize that our works um, in this world do have an eternal reward. And we need that perspective because it reminds us that our work matters. In this life, sometimes love and sacrifice can seem meaningless, right? Just, just think about people. There are people that I have known that I have invested in and poured time and energy into trying to help, and it hasn't seemed to make any difference. And so we need to remember that even when that is the case in this world, our works do matter. That's what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians. Um, just after discussing the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, this is his application of the resurrection. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In the Lord, because of Scripture's eternal perspective, our toil is not in vain. It will bring blessing and reward, even if in this life all we're seeing from it is failure and fruitlessness. And again, we need that reminder because it is calling us to desire things more deeply. People sometimes talk or dismiss that idea of heavenly rewards as if it's just like it's nothing. It's like, you know, this consolation prize in glory because the earth really stinks. And that is not how the Bible treats it. The idea is that the things of this world that we are so tempted to invest in are just too small for us to really find our appetites satisfied in them. That do not chase after the treasures of this world, Jesus says, because bugs are going to eat them and they're going to rot away, but chase after that which will endure that the reward for our faithfulness and service are greater and deeper and better things than the consolation prizes of this world. And the reason for all of that is that they're given by God himself in Scripture. Glory is always tied up with our experience and presence of God, and even our rewards are. So Peter says it, he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Paul uses almost the same words. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing, which is that we're laboring for this crown, but you cannot detach the crown from the king that is giving it, from God himself. That's the final piece of fruitfulness, the final thing that addresses our desire, that it's not just about desiring God's work or God's reward, but ultimately, fruitfulness means desiring God himself. Those verses we read from the end of Hebrews 6, um, they aren't just about eternal rewards, but they exist in the context of this warning Paul is giving against people turning away from the faith or falling away from the faith. And that is a hard topic, and there is a tension in how the Bible addresses it. On the one hand, Scripture promises that if we are in Christ, that God is at work in us and will never let us go. 
So as Philippians 1 puts it, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So God will keep us secure, but that we can abuse that idea because it is describing something that is internal and invisible. Um, I can have hope that God is at work in me, but I cannot presume upon that idea, right? What I can't say is like, well, sweet, you know, God's going to complete this work. I'm just going to do whatever I want. It's going to, you know, good times are going to flow. God's work in us always manifests through our um, working out our salvation. God's work always manifests in us through us seeking to do good works. And that is what the author author of Hebrews is trying to get at in the verses that we read a couple minutes ago. He says, hear him in that light again. He says, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. While we have hope that God is at work in us, we are called to diligently chase after and pursue God. We are called to constantly be growing in our faith and our walks. And that's because there is no neutral gear in the Christian life. You never stay in one place. Either you are moving forward or you're sliding backward in reverse. Either you're growing or you're dying. In Scripture, we don't coast our way into the pearly gates, right? And that is a sobering truth, but that is the reason that Paul warns in verse 12 against laziness. Because he's not just talking about sloth in the sense of like not working many hours at work. He's talking about spiritual sloth, spiritual uncaring. And that can be deadly for our souls. Losing our desire for God or our passion for him is a dangerous thing, right? If we aren't that land that is soaking up the rain and bearing fruit, it is easy over time for the thorns and thistles to grow. None of which I say lightly, but I say that because that should be reminding us that as much as it's good to be seeking to be fruitful in the sense of our works and in the sense of, you know, heavenly rewards and things, what is most important is for us to be seeking after God himself. Satan does not usually attack Christians by making them atheists. He doesn't usually try to turn us into like criminals or deviants. Instead, he simply tries to make us cease to care about Jesus. He makes us busy, so busy that prayer and uh, scripture and the life of the body and meaningful relationships all kind of fall away. He makes us discouraged. He causes our struggle to come to God um, to turn into this thing that makes us feel insufficient, and so we give up trying. He deceives us, convincing us that the cross isn't as heavy as it is when Jesus tells us to take it up, or that the love of God isn't as great as he promises in Scripture. And in all of that, when you really boil it down, the avenue of attack that Satan is taking is sloth. It is teaching us They're causing us to fail to care, as we should, about God and our relationship with him. And then slowly, like a tree without water, we start to shrivel and wilt. I had a plea for us this morning as I just wrestled with that idea of thought, sloth. If I had one thing I would beg, it is do not let yourself be cut off from your father for lack of care. 
No matter how hard it is to get out of bed, no matter how busy we get, no matter what happens in the rest of life, that we are called to fight tooth and claw to keep him at the center of things. Because, because we, can, we can try to deal with all that other stuff, the laziness and the failing to do good works and stuff, but if we are not doing that, we will not have the strength to endure in it. And our souls are actually put in danger. But at the same time, I offer this thought in closing, Making God the center is actually in so many ways the cure for our struggles with sloth. It isn't just that being apathetic towards God might kill us, but it is that the more we desire and know him, the more alive we become. It is in encountering God that we're drawn towards his work. The more that we love him, the more that we're then drawn to love what he has made. We don't stir ourselves up to good works just by force of will, but, but the way it happens is that we encounter God, see his work for us, see his love shown to us, you know, hear once more the, the good news of the gospel, experience his presence and his care for us, and in those things, our hearts are actually then caused to well up and overflow into the work that he calls us to. And it's in encountering God that we find hope in his rewards, As long as all we're seeing is the stuff around us, right? We're not going to persevere in the calling. But when we behold eternity and the promises that it holds, the chief of which is knowing him and being known by him, then suddenly we find our desires start to be deepened. And these these easy, shallow things of this world, we're just like, they, they don't hold the power over us that they did before. It grows our appetite for what is truly good and lasting. At the end of the day, it is God who provides the solution to our sloth. He has made us with significance and meaning. He has called us to care and to live out our salvation. And he has called us to find our desires met in him. It is in desiring him and meeting with him that that uncaring malaise of sloth turns into the fruitful lives that we were created to have. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the love that you show us in your presence. May we ever be seeking after you to know you more, to know you more deeply, and may that stir us up then to be forces of blessing and love in this world. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who himself did not sit on that throne in glory, but came here to pursue us and win us. Amen. Would you stand and sing with me? You dance over me while I am Mirror
Lord, I'm amazed by you. Lord, I'm amazed by you. Lord, I'm amazed by you and how you love me. with all of you this morning. Easter is coming, and I, I just feel like I've been sitting in these Seven Deadly Sin series a lot, um, and just, just remember that like part of the purpose of this is that we might all the more relish the goodness of what Jesus Christ has done for us. I would also welcome your prayers for Elizabeth and I this week, um, as I mentioned during prayer request time. But now go with the Lord's blessing. Actually, before you do that, also join us for fellowship time, because I forgot to mention that after the, after the service, and greet, greet the people around you. We are one in Jesus Christ. Now, for real, go with the Lord's blessing. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you his peace today and always. Amen.